This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Dittman, Liverpool, United Kingdom. Web address mercurialspirit.co.uk From October to Brest-Litovsk by Leon Trotsky Chapter 3 The Drive of June the 18th a governmental crisis, as a result of the demonstration by these revolutionary bodies, appeared absolutely inevitable. But the impression produced by the demonstration was lost as soon as it was reported from the front that the revolutionary army had advanced to attack the enemy. On the very day that the working men and the Petrograd garrison demanded the publication of the secret treaties and an open offer of peace, Kerensky flung the revolutionary troops into battle. This was no mere coincidence, to be sure. The projectors had everything prepared in advance, and the time of attack was determined not by military, but by political considerations. On the 19th of June, there was a so-called patriotic demonstration in the streets of Petrograd. The Nevsky prospect, the chief artery of the bourgeoisie, was studded with excited groups, in which army officers, journalists and well-dressed ladies were carrying on a bitter campaign against the Bolsheviki. The first reports of the military drive were favourable. The leading liberal papers considered that the principal aim had been attained, that the drive of June the 18th, regardless of its ultimate military results, would deal a mortal blow to the revolution restore the army's former discipline, and assure the liberal bourgeoisie of a commanding position in the affairs of the government. We, however, indicated to the bourgeoisie a different line of future events. In a special declaration which we made to the Soviet Council a few days before the drive, we declared that the military advance would inevitably destroy all the internal ties within the army, set up its various parts one against the other, and turn the scales heavily in favour of the counter-revolutionary elements, since it would be impossible to maintain discipline in a demoralised army, an army devoid of controlling ideas, without recourse to severe repressive measures. In other words, we foretold in this declaration those results which later came to be known collectively under the name of Cornilivism. We believed that the greatest danger threatened the revolution in either case, whether the drive proved successful, which we did not expect, or met with failure, which seemed to us almost inevitable. A successful military advance would have united the middle class and the bourgeoisie in their common chauvinistic tendencies, thus isolating the revolutionary proletariat. An unsuccessful drive was likely to demoralize the army completely, to involve a general retreat and the loss of much additional territory, and to bring disgust and disappointment to the people. Events took the latter course. The news of victory did not last long. It was soon replaced by gloomy reports of the refusal of many regiments to support the advancing columns, of the great losses in commanding officers, who sometimes composed the whole of the attacking units, etc. In view of its great historical significance, we append an extract from the document issued by our party in the All-Russian Council of Soviets on the 3rd of June 1917, just two weeks before the drive. Quote, we deem it necessary to present, as the first order of the day, 
a question on whose solution depend not only all the other measures to be adopted by the Council, but actually and literally the fate of the whole Russian revolution, the question of the military drive which is being planned for the immediate future. Having put the people and the army, which does not know in the name of what international ends it is called upon to shed its blood, face to face with the impending attack, with all its consequences, the counter-revolutionary circles of Russia are counting on the fact that this drive will necessitate a concentration of power in the hands of the military, diplomatic and capitalistic groups affiliated with English, French and American imperialism, and thus free them from the necessity of reckoning later with the organized will of Russian democracy. The secret counter-revolutionary instigators of the drive, who do not stop short of even military adventurism, are consciously trying to play on the demoralization in the army brought about by the internal and international situation of the country, and to this end are inspiring the discouraged elements with the fallacious idea that the very fact of a drive can rehabilitate the army, and by this mechanical means hide the lack of a definite program for liquidating the war. At the same time, it is clear that such an advance cannot but completely disorganize the army by setting up its various units one against the other. End quote. The military events were developing amid ever-increasing difficulties in the internal life of the nation. With regard to the land question, industrial life and national relations, the coalition government did not take a single resolute step forward. The food and transportation situation were becoming more and more disorganized. Local clashes were growing more frequent. The socialistic ministers were exhorting the masses to be patient. All decisions and measures, including the calling of the Constituent Assembly, were being postponed. The insolvency and the instability of the coalition regime were obvious. There were two possible ways out. To drive the bourgeoisie out of power and promote the aims of the revolution, or to adopt the policy of bridling the people by resorting to repressive measures. Kerensky and Tseretelli clung to a middle course and only muddled matters the more. When the cadets, the wiser and more far-sighted leaders of the coalition government, understood that the unsuccessful military advance of June 18th might deal a blow not only to the revolution, but also to the government temporarily, they threw the whole weight of responsibility upon their allies to the left. On the 2nd of July came a crisis in the ministry, the immediate cause of which was the Ukrainian question. This was, in respect, a period of most intense political suspense. From various points at the front came delegates and private individuals, telling of the chaos which reigned in the army as a result of the advance. The so-called government press demanded severe repressions. Such demands frequently came from the so-called socialistic papers. Also, Kerensky, more and more openly, went over to the side of the cadets and the cadet generals, who had manifested not only their hatred of revolution, but also their bitter enmity towards revolutionary parties in general. The Allied ambassadors were pressing the government with the demand that army discipline be restored and the advance continued. The greatest panic prevailed in government circles, while among the working men much discontent had accumulated, which craved for outward expression. Avail yourself of the resignations of the cadet ministers and take all the power into your own hands, 
was the call addressed to the working men of Petrograd, to the socialist revolutionists and Mensheviki in control of the Soviet parties. I recall the session of the executive committee that was held on the 2nd of July. The Soviet ministers came to report a new crisis in the government. We were intensely interested to learn what position they would take now that they had actually gone to pieces under the great ordeals arising from coalition policies. Their spokesman was Zeratelli. He nonchalantly explained to the executive committee that those concessions which he and Tereshenko had made to the Kiev Rada did not by any means signify a dismemberment of the country and that this, therefore, did not give the cadets any good reason for leaving the ministry. Saratelli accused the cadet leaders of practicing a centralistic doctrinarism, of failing to understand the necessity for compromising with the Ukrainians, etc., etc. The total impression was pitiful in the extreme. The hopeless doctrinaire of the coalition government was hurling the charge of doctrinarism against the crafty capitalist politicians who seized upon the first suitable excuse for compelling their political clerks to repent of the decisive turn they had given to the course of events by the military advance of June the 18th. After all the preceding experience of the coalition, there would seem to be but one way out of the difficulty to break with the cadets and set up a Soviet government. The relative forces within the Soviets were such at the time that the Soviets' power as a political party would fall naturally into the hands of the social revolutionists and the Mensheviki. We deliberately faced the situation. Thanks to the possibility of re-elections at any time, the mechanism of the Soviets assured a sufficiently exact reflection of the progressive shift towards the left in the masses of workers and soldiers. After the break of the coalition with the bourgeoisie, the radical tendencies should, we expected, receive a greater following in the Soviet organizations. Under such circumstances, the proletariat struggle for power would naturally move in the channel of Soviet organizations and could take a more normal course. Having broken with the bourgeoisie, the middle-class democracy would itself fall under their ban and would be compelled to seek a closer union with the socialistic proletariat. In this way, the indecisiveness and political indefiniteness of the middle-class democratic elements would be overcome sooner or later by the working masses, with the help of our criticism. This is the reason why we demanded that the leading Soviet parties, in which we had no real confidence, and we frankly said so, should take the governing power into their own hands. But even after the ministerial crisis of the 2nd of July, Tseretelli and his adherents did not abandon the coalition idea. They explained in the executive committee that the leading cadets were, indeed, demoralized by doctrinarism and even by counter-revolutionism, but that in the provinces there were still many bourgeois elements which could still go hand in hand with the revolutionary democrats, and that in order to make sure of their cooperation, it was necessary to attract representatives of the bourgeoisie into the membership of the new ministry. Dan already entertained hopes of a radical democratic party to be hastily built up, at the time, by a few pro-democratic politicians. The report that the coalition government had been broken up, only to be replaced by a new coalition, spread rapidly through Petrograd and provoked a storm of indignation among the working men and soldiers everywhere. 
Thus, the events of July the 3rd to the 5th were produced. End of chapter 3